Welcome to Blackbird episode number 87. My name is James. And today, first of all, I should say that this is a pre-recorded episode. So if you're watching this on YouTube, this was recorded on March 2nd in the evening. As you can probably tell by my backdrop, there is no sun coming in my window. And with that, I am pleased to introduce to you Jonathan Church. Jonathan is an economist, a stoic, a cancer survivor, and an author on race and sort of finding a third way on race relations, especially now in sort of the age of wokeness and CRT and that sort of thing. So without further ado, I will introduce Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, James. So I wanted to talk to you. uh, First of all, I, I was looking for somebody who was a Stoic. That was the big thing. And I emailed the Daily Stoic guy whose name I can't remember, Ryan Holiday. Yeah, that's the one. Ryan Holiday. And he, you know, he's a big name. He didn't respond, obviously. I'm sure he gets hundreds of thousands of emails a week. And so I asked around people in my circles and your name came up. You have written for Quillette, which I know a lot of people in my circles are also in kind of Quillette circles, especially back in the, in the, the days of the intellectual dark web when Jordan Peterson was, you know, all the rage. So I liked what you had to say, especially I listened to a couple of interviews with you and Ryan Holiday talking about your battle with with brain cancer and how stoicism kind of brought you through that, uh, which was really touching and and inspiring. Um, But then it turned out that you're an economist and you've also written this book on race relations. And now you tell me that you're also working on um, a study of Marx. And uh, so I I just kind of want to dig into all of that. Before we do that, why don't you go ahead and kind of introduce yourself, just, just a quick bio for the folks. I think you've covered the main ground. You know, given my critique of Marx, I suppose it's a little ironic that I work in the public sector, but I'm basically a public sector economist studying inflation. Well, inflation measurement, I deal with public inquiries, research stuff, basically just to be an expert on the CPI. You know, to a certain extent, I'm happy to talk about that, although I have to be careful because just because of the nature of the position is, you know, we don't really want to say too much about because I, I wouldn't want it to reflect on, on, on the agency. But um, generally, I, I do like talking about economics and, and inflation. But at any rate, I guess the stuff that's really relevant here is that in 2016, I started writing a weekly column for the Good Men Project, which is um, a very aggressive outlet. But I just fell upon the opportunity from an uh, article I liked. The editor liked it and gave me the, um, the column. So I started writing a lot ended up writing 50, 60, 70 essays or so for them. And uh, this is about the time that the social justice crusade is really starting, to, or at least as it's manifested in the last decade, has reached a crescendo. And then in 2018, I uh, wrote a, my first article for Colette, which was on white fragility theory. A couple months later, now a big article for Aereo. And that's when I started to connect with Helen Pluckrose and that team. Peter Bogosian for a little while, James Lindsay, although less so with him because he was so busy with other things. But anyway, over the course of about two years, I was writing a lot on Robin Giangelo and it culminated in a book, which critiques her work. Somewhere in there, there was APA guidelines, American Psychological Association came out with 
guidelines about traditional masculinity and how we need to rethink it. It was obviously very heavily influenced by um, the social constructionist framework that really underlies social justice crusades. So I ended up writing an article about how my toxic masculinity, so to speak, helped me cope with brain cancer. And my studies of Stoicism, I would have to say, or at least my intensive studies of Stoicism really came after that because I guess I had always realized I had sort of Stoic tendencies, views about mortality and about dealing with adversity and things like that. And just studying the philosophy really helped to articulate what was already there. And so I ended up kind of getting into that and really starting to see that as an alternative way to think about social justice. And that's what the second book is about. It's coming up in May. And then you mentioned Marx. You know, I don't want to just sort of spend the whole interview talking about background <laughs> stuff. So you mentioned Marx. Yeah, I've just been uh, intensively studying Marx of late, just, you know, kind of reacquainting it. I, I studied a lot in college, but um, I do think Marx is actually still very influential amongst uh, in leftist circles and progressive circles, social justice circles. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's hard to explain exactly why I started to get passionate about something, but I just did. I started following David Harvey a lot. And, um, you know, I just basically think it's it's uh, <laughs> fundamentally wrong. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the set. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what else you want me to say. I mean, I can talk about education and all that stuff, but, you know, I never care for that too much, that stuff. But, you know, point is you either do stuff or you don't. Cool. So I, I would assume that you're not an Austrian economist. Is that right? I, I figure yeah. if you were an Austrian, I probably would have heard of you before as an economist. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. I, I, um, when I think about it, I, I would say I'm, uh, I don't know really exactly how I describe myself. Sure. Um, I'm just an economist. And in that sense, I mean, if you want to use prevailing labels, I certainly uh, am on board with so-called neoclassical economics, mainstream economics. Uh, you know, I believe in supply and demand and margins and um, things like that, uh, which is, you know, I mean, in there's an old joke, you know, you teach a parrot to say supply and demand and you've made half an economist. I mean, but, <laughs> you know, it, you know, if you understand how demand and supply are derived from like, you know, utility maximization, mm -hmm. cost minimization, uh, profit maximization and so on, and, and just how the margins work out, um, you know, you, you know, 80, 90% of economics, then the real hard part is just how to figure it out how to apply that to different particular situations, just figuring out where the margins are, where the costs and benefits are. Um, and so, yeah, just a basic, you know, cost benefit economist. Um, uh, it's a vast field that you can talk about a lot of different things. Um, I would say that I am not a free market and fundamentalist, so to speak. Um, I do think, you know, I mean, the market failures and there are just economics is more about the tools for me. It's about resource allocation. It's about dealing with scarcity. It's about predicting human behavior, uh, those sorts of things. Cool. And so you mentioned that you work heavily in inflation. Um, would, and you mentioned the CPI. Would you say that the CPI is a, is a reliable measure of inflation or does it leave things out? Well, so this will venture into territory that I, that I want to be careful about, but I mean, basically, sure. but basically, yes. Um, I mean, there's two major 
indicators of consumer place inflation in the U.S. at least. There's a CPI and there's the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. Um, PCE has, uh, you know, they have different weights for different items. Healthcare is bigger weight than PCE. They use different formulas. So the PCE is able to better take into account consumer substitution across different item categories. Um, the scope of coverage is a little different. Uh, but they're both dealing with consumer items. There's diff other measures of inflation like GDP deflator, which takes into account a larger scope of items. Then there's a producer price index, which deals with just producers and what they get when they sell things, uh, so selling price. But, um, I mean, the CPI has been around for over 100 years. Uh, it's gone through a lot of methodological um, developments. Um, I would say that... Uh, there's a lot to know about it, and it is um, the, the aim is to as objectively and accurately uh, measure inflation as as possible. So yes, awesome. Are you at liberty to let us know which like agency you work for, or can people find your economics work if they're looking for it? Yeah, it's a Bureau of Labor Statistics. Okay, cool. Uh, just you know, I mean, I'm telling you, the people who listen to this podcast are huge nerds and i'm sure some of them will want to look for your work if it's available yeah i would just i would just emphasize that my views don't ref, are not any in any way you know my views as a private citizen are certainly in way sure. no way affiliated with uh, the bureau um and my capacity as an economist there that makes sense um do you have any insight on uh kind of where we're where we're headed as far as inflation goes or um yeah. or even like what's going on with the global unrest and and Russia and, and Ukraine, um, how that might impact us? Uh, so, uh, and that is uh, even, this is where I would even be even yet more careful because, um, <laughs> because uh, you know, we're in the business of uh, measuring inflation and not explaining it. I certainly have my own, you know, views on, uh, you know, for instance, last summer, I was of the view that inflation was coming. Um, and I, I was tempted to write an article, uh, but then I stopped because I, I thought that, that, you know, given the fact that I am in inflation measurement, working for the government and so on, that that, that would end up becoming, that would end up reflecting on the agency itself. And so I just stopped. Um, but I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, it's just standard stuff. Like if, uh, if everybody stops buying energy from state Russia and oil prices go up and gasoline prices will go up and that'll have a you know, that, that will obviously contribute to inflation, um, you know, uh, to the extent that, um, you know, you continue to have supply chain issues. Um, although, Stephen Ratner once uh, recently said that that's more a symptom, symptom than a cause, and I tend to agree with that. Um, that this is all ultimately demand-driven, mm -hmm. um, and that uh, the supply chains ultimately just are, are strained because they're trying to meet demand. But, but again, that's just my own view. Um, and I certainly am no Lawrence Summers, um, who is really the guy I like to follow on this stuff. All right, cool. Well, why don't we switch gears? Um, well, no, you did, you did, uh, mention also Marx and, uh, and some of your criticisms of him. Um, did you want to, did you want to talk about some of the work that you've been do doing lately on that? Well, I wrote a two-part essay in December and then early January about what, why his values theory is, is wrong. Um, and I guess really the thing that just, um, I mean, there's so much uh, with Marx um, that 
I find very problematic. But the, the most fundamental thing is, um, and this is really what Capital uh, Volume 1 is all about, which is this notion of surplus value. And I, I get this sense that a lot of people think, I mean, for, so I, I should say that I actually don't particularly like the words capitalism and socialism. I put them in quotes. One, because they just carry so much baggage that I think they've become somewhat somewhat meaningless in the discourse. They just mean a lot of different things for different people. And anyway, for me, economics isn't really about mainstream economics, neoclassical economics, if you will. Um, isn't I mean, a lot of people talk about it in terms of capitalism, quote unquote, but I ultimately think it's not a very helpful way of understanding things. Economics is simply about resource resource allocation and understanding how markets allocate resources, how people respond to prices and uh, costs and things like that. So that's one. Is um, it, uh, that's a kind of a preface or a precursor. And the reason it's important is because Marxian economics ultimately comes down to defining cap what he understands as capitalism, and what he understands as capitalism is. Uh, capital accumulation, that it's a whole system built to accumulate capital on the backs of workers, in particular, unpaid labor. And this is really the crux. I mean, at least in my view, this is where Marx either stands or falls, and in my view, falls, is that surplus value, you know, the discussion around capitalism and profit is usually about profit and whether profit is good. And of course, profit is good because it, it reflects value creation. But the thing is, um, Marxian economics tends to see surplus value as, as bad because of this. I'll get into this. But people uh, basically think that the cr criticism coming from Marx is that capitalism is bad because it generates profit and that profit is inherently exploitative. But at least in Marx, there's a difference between the rate of surplus value and the rate of profit. But more fundamentally, um, profit arises ultimately from surplus value. And surplus value is simply the idea, the following idea, that you have a working day, and then you have what he calls socially necessary labor time. And socially necessary labor time is just basically the average amount of productivity across all workers. So, you know, he observes that people are different productivity. They, they, they can, they're, they're either motivated, they're not, and so on. And so you wash through all that by coming up with this average idea, this average amount of or quality of labor that's necessary to generate means of success, of subsistence, commodities. So if you just take an example, a shirt or uh, loaves of bread, a certain batch of loads of bread, and just say that socially necessary labor time to, to generate a batch of loaves of bread is six hours. In, cap in capitalism, the idea is that you 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 hire the free-range laborer, and free in quotes because the idea is that he's actually not free, um, and you pay him for six hours and you work him for 12 hours, and uh, the six extra hours is surplus value. So basically, a paid labor and unpaid value, uh, unpaid labor, and then you have and so that's absolute surplus value. It's twelve minus six. And then you get relative surplus value, where like you know, suppose the law says you can only work people for ten hours a day. So relative surplus value is that you're using technolo technological development to reduce the amount of socially necessary labor time. So now you know you can have uh, technological improvements that. You know, so it takes only five hours or four hours or three hours to generate, you know, this, uh, this subsistence, uh, socially necessary labor time. And so as you 
you increase the intensity of labor or you increase technological or improve technolo technology, you can reduce socially necessary labor time and therefore increase the relative surplus value, that is socially necessary labor time relative to the total work working day. Anyway, this is complete nonsense. Um, <laughs> if, if you yeah. know anything about new, basic economics, the wage in a, in a competitive market is equal to the marginal revenue pro product. In other words, workers paid exactly for what he produces. And if you think about the upward sloping nature of a supply curve, each point along those, that supply curve represents a, wedge, a re reservation wage. It's basically a point of indifference between labor and leisure. Like mm -hmm. If I'm going to work, I have to earn at least this much. Okay. And then you compare. And so that's true for every marginal worker along the supply curve. And then you've got the demand curve. This is in the labor market, by the way. And you have the labor demand and labor supply and they intersect. You get a market clearing wage and the wage up to the point of equilibrium is above each point of the supply curve, which gives you producer per surplus. In this case, the workers per surplus. So you can, in some sense, say that the worker is exploiting the firm because he's getting the market wage when he's only willing to work for his reservation wage. But anyway, that, I can go on and on. That's just basic lesson in economics. The real there's two points. One, worker earns the uh, the wage is equal to marginal revenue product, and along the infra marginal, the rest of the supply curve, you're earning your reservation wage or the weight, the market wage, which is above your wedge reservation wage. So you're earning what you produce and some, and some. And this is just basic economics. And the idea that this whole global centuries long system of capitalism, uh, which is based and, and capital accumulation is based on this nefarious division between paid and unpaid labor is just complete utter nonsense. And I mean, even more fundamentally, if you look at, Subjective value theory, which I mean, <clears throat> Marx and and uh, the subjectivists were, I guess, were, were writing around the same time. But uh, there's a reason that that subjective value theory kind of came out on top. It makes more sense. Um, and if value is indeed subjective, then there the idea of surplus of something subjective is kind of absurd on its face. Well, there's the other side of this. So I'm talking, I was talking about the production market or the, the supply side here. Or, sure. Well, well, actually the, the labor market. But what you're saying is, I mean, is, is, is that's, that's taking it, the, the analysis to, to, you know, I don't know if you say one further or you compute, compute, completing the, the narrative. But I mean, yes, uh, you, you know, for Marx, everything's organized around production. Produ value is created in production. But that's wrong, too. That's another fundamentally wrong precept in Marx. You know, David Arby would say that value is produced in production and realized in exchange. But that's just, that's just wrong. So what you need is a demand curve, and that's where subjective value theory comes in. That is, you have preferences. People either want to buy or they don't. And so... You have the upper sloping supply curve. Well, I mean, you know, you can have flat or inelastic supply curves, but the standard, you know, you have the upward sloping supply curve, and then you have the downward sloping demand curve. And that's just saying that, you know, people are willing to buy whatever it is at different prices. And so you compare that to the, the, the market clearing price, and you have consumer surplus introducing to producer surplus. But anyway, the point is, yes, value is subjective. And if you, you know, you can write a whole lot of bad novels, right? And nobody wants to buy them. <laughs> yeah. But Marx would say, 
Well, you know, in, in a sense, what Marx is saying is that, that those are that's value because you know you you've put all this labor into writing a bad novel. It's value, you know. Um, I mean, I'm just using that as an example, but uh, and again, you got to go back to socially necessary labor time because um, that's really the idea. But but yes, I mean, I'm basically agreeing with you um, that uh, value is is not fundamentally located in production per se. Mm -hmm. It's also located in preferences in subjective value. You can create all the blueberry prodigy pies that you want, but some people want to want cherry pies. And so that creates substitution. Like substitution is just fundamental to economics. You know, funded substituting between products based on yep. price change and preferences and that sort of thing. So basically, yes, I agree with you. Yep. Substitution between products, substitution also between immediacy and and waiting. I mean, time preference yep. is a huge yep. deal here. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. And you know, also, I mean, if I if I somehow were to construct a tractor, it would take me years. If you and I constructed a tractor. Maybe our our skill sets are a little bit different, uh, and it would take us less time. But if we had an entire assembly line of tractor builders, well, yes, we're going to have to to pay them, but there's also payoff for us, and that is not fundamentally unjust. No, it's not. And like uh, the division of labor is one of the main developments that Marx seems to associate with the rise of quote unquote capitalism. Mm. And I'm not sure that he necessarily says that's a bad thing, but that, that there's something, but that there's all sorts of these, these bad things that arise out of it. Um, you know, and his all of his chapters on primitive accumulation and so on that, you know, basically people are thrown off the lands and closure and all that. And states start to protect private property and all that. Um, and I mean, this is all just basic natural. I mean, he um, makes it out to be this sort of centuries long sort of capitalist conspiracy to take over the state, take over the means of production and all that. And just with absolutely no humanity, humanitarian regard for all the people thrown, you know, quote unquote, thrown off the land and his families just slaved away in the factories and so on. When in reality, this just, a, a, you know, and this is explored in books by like D D D Douglas North in um, The Rise of the Western World and many other books on, on economic history. Joel Moker has written about culture and ideas and David Landes has written a book on the wealth and poverty of nations. I, I might watch that. But anyway, the issue is that the um, uh, basic uh, argument of North and, and uh, Wolf, I, or is it Thomas, uh, his co-author, is that, you know, uh, 10th, 11th, 12th century, you know, you have population growth. Um, eventually, land becomes scarce. People move around. They go to other places. Land is, is, is more abundant. But, over, but ultimately, you just have more and more population growth. Cities arise. People, more, more markets arise. Um, so there's more greater needs. There's more complex societies. And so people need to divide up tasks and labor, labor uh, you know, basically the division of labor. And you have specialization different regions because different regions can produce things more efficiently. So, you know, comparative advantage. And anyway, yada, yada, the whole history about just basically increasing complex connections of uh, regional economies that are mediated through markets. Um, and I mean, you know, it's not like history is just one great peaceful affair. There's obviously all sorts of frictions that happen here and there. And one of Douglas North's biggest uh, concerns is with, you know, the path dependencies of institutional development. 
and the way they address or don't address things like transaction costs that either facilitate or do not facilitate market transactions. Um, but anyway, you can explore all this in great detail. The basic point is, again, I'm agreeing with you, division of labor is a great mm-hmm. thing. And Adam Smith was right. Yeah. And uh, just before we before we change the subject, I'll quickly plug Thaddeus Russell's course that's coming up. He and Ben Burgess, who is a philosopher in the Marxian tradition, yeah. notably not an economist, uh, they're going to be doing a like eight-part series on Marx's capital. Thad, as a former Marxist, Burgess as a, a current uh, and like unabashed market Marxist. Oh yeah. Um, so I'm that'll be familiar. that'll be yeah it'll be super super interesting to join. If anybody in the audience wants to check it out, I will probably be attending as well. Um, why don't we switch gears then to Stoicism? Uh, before we start, why don't we just lay a very basic ground level of what is Stoicism? In your words. Yeah. Um, well, I'm trying to think about whether it's better to go historically or through the philosophy. I suppose, I guess, um, yeah, I guess a little bit of both. I mean, so it was founded by a guy named Zeno of Sidium. Uh, he was um, a merchant, uh, fourth, fourth century BC, I think. Uh, the story is he was carrying a, or he was sailing on the Mediterranean, a ship filled with purple dye from Phoenicia. And this was, you know, very valuable stuff it was, it was extracted from shellfish or something. It was used to dye the robes of emperor's uh, robes and presumably all sorts of other linen and barrel and whatever. But anyway, it was, uh, it was a fortune on the ship. And he lost in a shipwreck, landed in Piraeus, went over to Athens, I mean, some people say he was a penniless immigrant. Some, I think, sources say he actually had pre-existing investments, but whatever the case. Um, he walked into a bookstore one day and he heard the, the bookseller was reading from Xenophanes, uh, uh, I think. Uh, I, I botch the Greek names all the time, but um, he was reading from a book uh, basically about Socrates, Socratic Dialogues. Um, and he just loved what he was hearing. And he said, you know, he kind of stood up, said, where can I find a man like that? And the bookseller, there was a cynic philosopher named Crates that was walking by. He said, follow him. And he did. Came under the tutelage of Crates for a few years, but uh, eventually branched off and created Stoicism. Basic idea uh, of Stoicism, really, some, a lot of people talk about it as the dichotomy of control, but more fundamentally, it's about virtue. And the idea that living a happy or unimanistic, unimania, flourishing life um, is is all about living a life of virtue, building your character. It's four cardinal virtues, which come out of Plato, which is wisdom, courage, temperance, um, and uh, justice. And if you can... Learn to uh, build your life around virtue. You can learn to build a life of flourishing, of eudaimonia. And the way that you do that is that you exercise your capacity for reason, which has been endowed to you by nature, learning how to learning how to live in harmony with the world around us, nature, understanding your role in nature, your role in society, um, <clears throat> how you relate to other people, how you relate to yourself. Um, and all of this leads, this is what leads to the dichotomy of control, which is, you know, focusing on the things that you yourself control, your will, uh, your choices, and so on, and not on so-called um, externals, uh, 
And and this is where it kind of gets tricky and you have to navigate each situation and figure out what actually is under your control. Because it's not a philosophy of resignation. It's not simply saying, you know, just give up on the things you can't control. But it's really more about you know, using your reason to recognize where it is you can have the most impact based on your own abilities and your situation. Um, you know, that's where you get into the interconnectedness of the virtues. Um, so wisdom being exercised to recognize when it's right, right time to be courageous um, and recognize why it's better to be moderate rather than excessive, um, recognizing instant, uh, opportunities to contribute to, to justice and being courageous in the pursuit of justice and so on. So it really is very much about reason and about agency um, and all in the pursuit of virtue. Uh, and being in harmony with nature. I'm reminded of the serenity prayer, hearing you talk about that. Do you, yep. Yep. Is, that is that kind of a Christianized version, or I guess more de- the- theosized version of yeah, basically. stoicism? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I, my, uh, I, I, I guess my, I guess I would call my, my stoic friend, my uh, very good friend, but uh, as wondering whether I should call him colleague, but he was very uh, helpful in uh, helping to draft the book and looking over drafts and so on. But um, <clears throat> his pet peeve is to uh, think about sto- um, uh, stoicism as simply the dichotomy of control, because that's essentially the serenity prayer. Um, and that you really have to come back to virtue to understand what the dichotomy of control means for the stoic um but yes i mean the serenity prayer is a is a is a basic way to understand um the dichotomy of control cool can you explain the dichotomy of control a little bit more with a little bit more elaboration i it kind of flew over my head maybe yeah um so stoics are distinguished from the cynics okay in very very fundamental way in that the Stoic for the, the cynics are a much more austere version of um, uh, they, they they concentrate on, on a more austere life. In other words, the only thing that matters is virtue, like nothing else matters. Uh-huh. The Stoics moderate that a little bit and say that you can have these. I mean, everything is everything that's not virtue. It, we all ultimately should be indifferent about, but you have preferred indifference and dispreferred indifference. Uh, so you can, you know, it, it's obviously nice to have wealth and health and 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 uh, you know, those types of things. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you can misuse them. That's why they're not uh, as fundamental as virtue. But anyway, I'm getting to your question, don't worry. Um, let's just say that you have... Uh, know, really good health. And uh, you're also very athletic and, and a good athlete. And so you're about to enter into competition, I don't know, basketball player or something. And um, you, you play the game, you want to win, but you don't really ultimately have control over whether, full control over whether your team is going to win. All you have control over is to play as well as you can to prevent to prepare for the game as well as you can to train 
um, to study the game and then basically to play as well as you can. But you can't control necessarily how the other players are going to play, uh, whether the refereeing is bad, whether there's um, the ball takes a bad bounce or, to, or just goes in and out of the rim or whatever. So essentially that's the idea is that um, you want to focus on what it is you can control and take some wisdom to figure out what it is that you can control. Uh, and there's just things that are outside of your control. The importance to why it's that important is because, you know, um, if you're playing a game that comes down to the wire and the referee makes a bad call, I mean, yeah, we all get upset about it, but ultimately it just, it wasn't your fault. There's no reason that you need to get all out of sorts. Um, like, uh, come back to uh, a more serious or a more serious example: the brain, the brain tumor that I was, you know, I was pretty stoic when I found. I was just like, "Congratulations to the doctor because she found and figured out what was the reason I went to the hospital a few months before that." Um, like, I don't have any control over the fact that there was some mutation that that arose in, in the cell. Um, so, you know, there's just nothing I can do about that. There's no reason to get upset about it. Mortality is in, is, is coming to all of us. It's in the nature of living that we're all going to die. And obviously rather live longer than shorter. You know, it's a preferred and different. Um, but I don't have control. I, what I do have control over is going to see the doctor, uh, going through surgery as I did. Um, listening to the doctor's advice, you know, doing the chemo and the radiation, which actually wasn't that bad because my tumor is still very low grade. Um, and to the extent that it was, I mean, it just is what it is and you deal with it. So that's the idea is you just got to figure out what it is that you can control, what you can't control and not getting all worked up about what you can't control. You mentioned earlier that the, it started out, you were calling it your toxic masculinity. Um, which I'm guessing is kind of poking fun at, you know, people who actually believe in toxic masculinity. Uh, how would you differentiate, if you would, between toxic masculinity and stoicism, other than that, you know, stoicism is legitimate? Yeah, I think that the, the basic idea is that there's a distinction between lowercase stoicism and uppercase stoicism. And I think that the, the guidelines um, that the American... Uh, psychological association guidelines, they were ultimately talking about lower case stoicism, which is the layman conception of, you know, emotional repression and being cold hearted and all that. And, and not about philosophy of stoicism. And my argument, I guess I didn't, I wasn't as clear about that, but essentially um, by failing to make an explicit distinction between the two, you're in some sense reinforcing the conflation of the two because a lot of people who are not familiar with Stoicism and then come across a book like, you know, a Stoic Approach to Social Justice, which is what the next my, my, my next book is about, will just immediately think about Stoicism in terms of toxic masculinity. You know, the the, uh, the Marlboro man, emotionally repressed person who's not dealing uh, with his emotions in a, in a healthy way. Um, and so I guess that's, that's the, I mean, they, the guidelines talk about it in terms of like aggression, competitiveness, and all sorts of things, and then that, that feed into these traditional masculinity narratives. Um, but particularly in the, 
context of stoicism, it would have to do with how you deal with emotions or not dealing with them, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm firmly in the in the camp that says that, you know, emotions, generally speaking, are caused by intellectual thought. Uh, it might be an underlying belief that you don't consciously think of. It might be something that, you know, you consciously think and then that leads you to become angry or happy or whatever it is. But that emotions can be conquered through reason. Yeah. Is that in line with stoicism? Yeah. Uh, I mean, at least as I understand it, there really isn't a distinction between reason and emotion in, 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 um, in stoicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're wrapped up in the same sort of capacity of the individual to um, assent or not assent to particular judgments. So emotions are, it's it's kind of a problem of translation in a sense um, because emotions are more about value judgments and you got to distinguish that be, uh, from feelings or like immediate impressions. Oh, sure. So, okay. so there's, um, you know, I guess I botched the Greek pronunciation, but there's the word fantasia, I think it is. That's sort of the notion of these immediate impressions on the senses. And um, then the issue is like how you, process that. And um, the idea with cultivating reason is cultivating the ability to develop appropriate judgments about what those impressions mean uh, or how you should deal with them. Um, one of the ways that I think about that often is in, is in terms of like, uh, uh, to bring it back to social justice stuff, is, um, is uh, insult passivism. You know, when you talk about microaggressions or oversensitivity, political mm-hmm. correctness, and the idea that you're trying to regulate the discourse to be sensitive to people's, you know, psychological makeup or whatever. And I think uh, as a Stoic, you certainly want to be sensitive to other people. Uh, taking into account the impact of your actions is certainly in line with justice. Um, but at the same time, what's fundamental to Stoicism, to me at least, more fundamental is intent. And sometimes people are not, in, you know, Stoic sage is rare as a phoenix. None of this is, is, is perfect. So we make mistakes. And so when it comes to things like microaggressions, which ultimately, I mean, you know, people will say it's not subjective. These are real things. But I mean, I mean, the way it's defined is itself somewhat incoherent because, you know, some subcomponents like micro insult and then they give examples that are like really bad insults. And you're like, how is this micro? You know, it's an actual insult. So it, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting on a tangent about the uh, conceptual incoherence of it. But the issue is that Epictetus, Stoic uh, philosopher, would say, you know, stand by a rock and start insulting it. Think about it. You know, what have you really accomplished? You know, now obviously, human being is not a rock. You know, so they receive and process it. But the but it is the case that we're sort of objects like the rock and it's really the insults are just verbal vibrations vibrating off this. And it's really up to our own reason to to say, you know, this person's trying to get me all riled up. Why should I let that happen? You know, it doesn't reflect. I'm the, I'm the person who is the determinant who determines my self-worth. Not some troll on Twitter who's trying to get me all worked up or somebody who says something controversial in the public discourse. I mean, if you let all of that get to you, you're really psychologically uh, fragile. You know, this is what Hayton Lukianov called fragility activism and coddling up the American mind. And so that's just the idea is that first of all, 
you want to distinguish between the impressions that 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 come after us and the emotion as a as a as a value judgment. Um, if somebody close to you really dies, it's appropriate to feel grief. That's that immediate sensation. Mm-hmm. That's that's in in alignment with nature. But if you're still grieving two years afterwards and you just can't live your life, then you're obviously not coming to terms with nature because you're not coming to terms with the natural fact that all of us die and mortality is part of life. And so it's a mistaken judgment. That emotion of grief two, two years after the, fact, after the fact is a mistake in, in, in judgment. It's a value judgment that's mistaken. And that's the basic idea. And it's all wrapped up in one because it's, it's, it's the, the capacity to form those judgments, to perfect your reason, to cultivate your reason. If you if you're still in grief two years after the fact, that's just reason that has not been cultivated or is not working properly. Do you think that there are tools that people who are um, <clears throat> temperamentally more inclined towards uh, hyper emotionalism, oversensitivity, that sort of thing, that they can use in order to be more rational, for want of a better term? Well, I think that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in. Which is which uh, really kind of comes from Stoicism. Albert Ellis, I think, was one of the founders of CBT. Um, was was <clears throat> well read in Stoicism. Was influenced by Stoicism. Um, I should emphasize, I myself am not a psychologist, and I, and I wouldn't want to um, presume to uh, or a therapist. I wouldn't want to presume to know how to um, or to offer therapeutic advice to, uh, you know, a variety of different individuals with their own sort of issues and contingencies and contexts and so on. Um, in general, my own personal view is that there is something to be said for quote unquote growing up. Um, but that's a general principle and you know, needs to, you know, be acclimated to particular situations. Um, and I think that in general, stoicism is a way of sort of illuminating the power of reason to form good value judgments that allow you to put things into perspective and to a perspective that alleviates the anxiety or pain or the suffering that you would otherwise associate with a particular sensation. What do you think is the problem with, well, there there might be a lot, but uh, the main problems with white fragility theory the main ones i mean there's many but i guess the one that everybody sort of understands intuitively is the way it functions as a kafka trap so and i always you know i read it so many times i just forget how to even say it but she defines it as a as a minimal amount of racial stress that's uh uh, becomes intolerable. Let me look it up. I I, I always forget because I mean basically. Well, forget. It. I don't even have to. I I I, um, I always memorize and then I forget it because the basic idea is is simple. Um, Robin D'Angelo walks into a room and says, "You know, we're going to talk about whiteness, and we're going to talk about what it means to be white and why being white contributes to racism and racial inequality and and so on." This is what she would call racial stress immediately is felt by the people in the room. So immediately they get all worked up, you know, it becomes intolerable. So I've already used three words in her definition. And it triggers a range of defensive mechanisms, so, you know, anger, bill, leaving the situation and all that. And it's basically what she says. 
Um, and so for, for D'Angelo, white fragility is the idea that white people are just very fragile in conversations about race and that they're not, they're just not emotionally equipped to deal with it. In some sense, you would say they're not being proper stoics, I suppose, that they're, they're not uh, um, equipped to deal with uh, the hard controversies about race. Big problem with it, though, is that once she starts to explain their, their, their theoretical backdrop, the framework, you know, whiteness and implicit bias and all sorts of things, if you start to just sort of moderately, coolly point some, raise some questions, if you say, well, uh, uh, for instance, the implicit bias paradigm is, is very uh, problematic and there's all sorts of problems in the literature and so on. It's as if every objection, every question, every resistance is basically just cast away as white fragility. And so it becomes impossible to have any kind of dialogue. It's just a monologue. So it's a Kafka trap where every profession of innocence, so to speak, is taken as evidence of your guilt. And that's essentially what white fragility functions as. So basically, D'Angelo has never considered the possibility that she's just a bad diversity trainer. And that when she comes in and tries to talk about this in her obstinate, very um, uh, dogmatic way, it's just to be expected that people, I mean, and I grant it, a lot of people are probably not going to know that the literature on implicit bias, and they're not going to know the Foucault and the Derrida and all the philosophy that underlies all this stuff. Um, but they're still raising reasonable objections. Uh, and to just cast away all objections and accept and, and allow just her to be the um, the, pi the, the pietist arbitrator of all that can be said. Um, that's what it really comes down to. Then there's just all sorts, you know, the, it, the central premise of implicit bias, which has all sorts of problems. There's the reification fallacy involved in whiteness. There's all sorts of logical fallacies. There's uh, exploiting narratives at the expense of facts. And then there's logical problems that, yeah, I mean, it goes on. So for those of us who don't really like being called fragile, uh, <laughs> um, what should we be doing at, you know, in our, in our day-to-day lives, like at work when, uh, you know, they, they, they bring out the, the, the training that, you know, everybody's required to take and, if you if you differ from what is taught in the training, which you know, I should say, I've been in corporate training for seven years now, and I have never seen one of the like horror story type trainings where they're taught, you know, uh, they're try to be less white, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I know that those things are few and far between. But on the other hand, I mean, every major corporation now has diversity training, and the implication, of course, is that uh, we aren't diverse enough. And the reality is that we we are very diverse. Every company that I've ever worked for, let's just say that it is diverse. It's there are lots and lots of races represented. There's lots and lots of genders represented, um, including transgender people. Uh, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a white dude, but I'm a gay white dude. And and ten years ago, especially being a gay white dude meant something. Um, and I've never been discriminated against, really, uh, at least not in a corporate environment. Um, so I guess the question is, where do we, what should we be doing? Should we be trying to combat this? Should we just put it, be putting our heads down and, and not saying anything? Um, does it depend, does it depend on our constitution? 
Yeah, I guess I, sh- I would say I don't have any definitive advice. Um, my approach is essentially to try to explore the intellectual foundations of it all and write about it and talk about it. If I were actually required to participate in a train, then it would re- my the nature of my ter- participation would really depend, I suppose, on the situation. Um, I guess I would probably be inclined, be inclined to just remain silent, say whatever, just kind of sit through it, sleep through it. Um, because, uh, most likely it's just gonna, I mean, you know, you know, I don't want to say it definitively because it might have some useful stuff here and there, but, you know, and most likely it's just given the fact that I've studied a lot of this stuff, it'll just have a lot of talking points that I've already, uh, come across and, uh, raising questions about the theoretical underpinnings of it all will just kind of divert the trainer from, you know, doing what he or she needs to get the check for the hour long preservation presentation and likely the case that a lot of people in the audience are not going to be familiar with all the controversy, the nuances of the, of the theory. So it probably just be a waste of time. And, you know, you'll read a lot, you read a lot of articles that come up and say that diversity trainings, you know, they don't really work at least as they're set up. I mean, Jan Van B, 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 I don't remember how to say his name. He's an NYU psychologist who's done some very interesting research. I mentioned it in the book um, about how if you group people, different types of people in groups that ultimately they work together as a group and it it, it just transcends like the sexual orientation or the race or whatever. They just see see each other as members of the same group and that that tends to be very effective. But, you know, the, the boilerplate diversity trainings basically just don't work. I mean, at least that's my understanding. I mean, they just, it, it, it's it's ironic because you see a lot of quote-unquote anti-capitalism, you know, and Kimber and Kendi and, um, and many other, you know, even uh, mm. Dubois as a century before us, but he was a Marxist. But, you know, you have a lot of these sort of anti, because it's all about systems of power. So you have this sort of anti-Black Lives Matter, admittedly, Marxist, um, at least the founders admitted to be very sympathetic to Marx. Um, so you have this, you know, anti-capitalist streak, and yet uh, really it just becomes an industry in itself, a profit-making industry in itself. Um, and, you know, probably, as I said, profit is not bad, and, and it's actually not, as Marx said, you know, in terms of surplus value and unpaid labor. In this case, it's paid labor. The problem to me is that the value isn't there. So it's profit, but it's just not value. Um, but you know, that's just the way the markets work out, you know, and that's what economics is about to take it back. You know, I mean, I mean, who am I to say you shouldn't be doing this? Like, this is what people want to do, right? The corporate, there's demand for it. So prices are what they are because there's demand for it and there's resources to be allocated. And I mean, that's essentially how economics works. So it's in some sense, it's economics in in action. And really for those who find it to be so um, counterproductive, it's really up to them, like, to make the case for why it's counterproductive. And that's what I've been trying to do. And so again, I guess no definitive advice in my own case, I'd probably sleep through it um, and just continue doing what I'm doing, which is trying to explore the theoretical foundations of it all. And, and I do see merit in various aspects of social justice or the current social justice movement. Obviously in general, social justice is a good thing. It's a matter of what, what it amounts to. Um, but uh, and I guess the final point is that counterweight, 
which was founded by Helen Pluckrose, and which I write for. I'm about to write some regular articles for them, but they're probably the place to go to get advice on how to deal with this stuff because uh, that's what they specialize. It was, fa- it was founded to help people navigate these issues, diversity trainings, et cetera. So counterweight, or make a pitch for them. Cool. I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. So you you mentioned social justice. You, you It's in the subtitle of your upcoming book, Virtue in the Age of Identity Politics. Frederick Hayek had a pretty scathing view, uh, criticism of social justice as a concept um, because it collectivizes justice and justice is by definition individual, according to according to him. What do you what do you think of that sort of collectivism versus individualism in specifically this topic? Well, I, I should begin by saying that uh, at least the I mean the word collectivism itself uh, is very anathema to me personally. Um, I very much uh, am inclined towards an individualist approach to life and. I think that's largely a part of matter of personality and then over time a matter of um, sort of philosophical outlook in, in a sense. Um, but uh, I do, nevertheless, I, I mean, I did like Ayn Rand's novels when I was a kid, and, and I still think they're nice, they're, they're interesting novels, and, and I, you know. Uh, but I do think, I don't think that I would uh, get on board with that kind of libertarianism just because um first i don't think rand was was i I think that her understanding of economics was not as as good as it could have been um you know being against antitrust legislation and so on um but the point is that uh you know there is a there is there is a place for public goods um markets don't work perfectly in every city. There's a place for public goods. There's a place to take into account the social costs of externalities. Um, and I'm talking about economics right now. In terms of um, social justice, I tend to be very skeptical of the idea that social constructionism is as fundamental as it is to the two questions of justice conceived in terms of either class, as Marx would talk about it, uh, or race, as CRT would, um, or basically in general, like ideology or discourse, that people are sort of joined together in social groups by virtue of subscribing consciously or unconsciously to sort of ruling class uh, ideology or discourse. I do think that um, there's obviously cultural similarities like um, growing up in sort of like inner city neighborhoods of Providence, Rhode Island, on the east side of Providence, it was definitely a different kind of well-heeled culture. And, you know, it, people are actually nicer to me there than they were in the inner city, but whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're asking me my preferences, I'm more, in, I'm more inclined towards the Hayek, Hayek, Hayek view. But I, I, but I do think that there's merit. I mean, obviously race is something that, for example, you know, and I talk about this in chapter 10 of the White Fragility book, which is that white privilege, if you will, or whiteness as property, like something that all people part- that were quote-unquote white partake in for a long time was fundamental to what America was about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a very obvious, you know, really profound difference in social 
product or social outcomes and resource allocation just based on this sort of concept of race that really is made up, but nevertheless, quote unquote, reified, they say, or reinforced through social norms and you know, discourses and ideologies and that sort of thing. And so I, I'm not here to say it's all bunk because, you know, I do think there is something to be said. And internet intersectionality makes sense to a certain degree. And so I think that my main problem with it is the extent to which it becomes fundamental to everything. You get sort of like a bit availability bias, confirmation bias, basically a lot of con- con- it becomes a heuristic to filter everything, all the situational intricacies of the realities around us get shoehorned into this big uh, framework of social constructivism. And we're supposed to understand everything in terms of social constructs, when in fact, every situation is really different. And I mean, I I don't want to kind of ramble, but I have a lot. I I wouldn't say ramble. I just, I don't want to go on and on and on because there's a lot I can say about this. I am thinking of the Quillette article I wrote in September about why culture does matter for racial disparities. And the issue is not to say that Kendi would say that to say that there's something wrong with a culture is to say something that is inferior in culture is just wrong. It's that that's a fallacy of false equivalence. And that, um, you know, you can come up with sort of cultural trends. Like, for instance, um, you know, one of the things I was writing about was soul food in black culture in the South, you know, and how it arose and, and so on. And there's a, um, a discussion in, amongst people about how, you know, soul food can, if it, you know, uh, it's high fats and salts and so on, and and it can create con- contribute to uh, bad out- health outcomes. And so, to the extent that that's a cultural factor that can that can affect, you know, we would want to want to address it. Nothing about that is saying there's something inferior about the culture, or 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 black people or whoever is engaging in that kind of. You know, it's just saying that um, you know there's something there to, to address in terms of culture. And in terms of measuring culture, that that gets very difficult and get into these endogeneity issues that I talk about. So reverse causation and uh, selection bias and unobserved, you know, uh, unobserved heterogeneity, in other words, admitted variable bias. Um, And so anyway, there's so much I can say about this, why I probably have a sort of meandering quality to what I'm saying right now. But the, the issue is that I don't think that it is incorrect, or I think that there is merit to thinking about things in sociological terms, in terms of social constructs. Um, and I do think that, you know, we need to take that into account. But I'm not inclined to say that everything comes down to a social construct. Or at the very least, that if it is a social construct, there's other factors that determine its reality. Yeah, I mean, when I was getting into the soul food and culture thing, I mean, there's this basic there's this basic debate between whether racial inequality can be attributed to social um, structures or whether it can be attributed to culture. And you know, my argument is it is both, and that uh, there's there's that um, the interaction between the two can go both ways. Like, um, you know, obviously. We have a legacy of slavery and racism and so on in the U.S., which is just absolutely profound and needs to be taken into account in terms of its legacy. Um, but at the same time, um, you have uh, cultural developments that rise out of that that can reinforce the racial inequality. So, I mean, I used the example of basketball. There was a time 
when baseball was the main sport for black America and Jackie <laughs> Robinson and all that, the Negro leagues and so on. Um, and then at some point, uh, basketball, you know, say the sixties and seventies just became, you know, quote unquote, black sport. At least, you know, 75, 80% of NBA players are, are black and it's a big sport in black culture and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, some people say that that's the result of, um, the fact that we don't have proper baseball infrastructure in the inner city or whatever. And the, 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 so therefore it traces back to, uh, slavery again, you know, social construct or whatever. But, but the thing is, you know, baseball was big among black Americans in mid 20th century. And it might just be in this case that basketball just became more popular in black culture. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, uh, and so that in a sense resulted in this sort of, if you want to call it racial inequality, where you have many, many more black players and white white players. Um, and so, you know, these two factors are in, interacting with each other and reinforcing each other in different, different ways. And you can't discount the, the, the role of culture. None of this is saying that there's something inferior about that culture. I mean, that's the thing that kind of gets on my nerves is the notion that somehow this is saying something that this is something there's something inferior uh, about uh, black culture. If, for instance, you just read some literature and say that, you know, Southern soul food um, is uh regarded as unhealthy by many people. And in fact, there's movements to try to make it healthier. I mean, that's just an example, you know. Um, but it's also not to discount the profound importance of social structures, um, whatever they, they may be. So anyway. So the complete subtitle of the book, Virtue in an Age of Identity Politics, is a stoic approach to social justice. Um, without, you know, I don't want you to spoil your entire book because we want people to buy it, but what, what would you say is a good kind of overview of a stoic approach to social justice? Yeah, it's about virtue. It's about developing this. I mean, I guess this goes back to your question about, so about Hayek, that essentially it begins with the individual. Um, and in the book, uh, I draw a distinction between the, or it's drawn from Julia Annis's book, um, Intelligent Virtue, but the living of your life and the circumstances of your life. And that's about the dichotomy of control, that there's you know, nothing you can do about where you were born, family that you were born into, and so on. What you need to focus is on the living of your life. Um, and that's about character development and virtue and so on, and exercising your capacity for reason. And, all, and that is where the pursuit of justice really begins as opposed to starting with social structures. It's focusing on intent versus intent versus impact. And you just put it in terms of an example, I actually bring up the example of um, George Floyd and uh, uh, Darnella Frazier, the young woman who took the video of the, um, of the event. And, um, you know, basically saying that that was uh, an example of stoic virtue and the pursuit of racial justice, because there's this event going on where you get a cop who's got his knee on his neck for nine minutes, right? And people are gathering around a stressful situation. And people are probably concerned about, you know, in those situations, you never know exactly what you're going to But she had the presence of mind, i.e. wisdom, to keep that camera fixed on the event 
and then having the courage to hand it over to the authorities and courage. I mean, I, I read stories about how she kind of had to leave her house for a while and stay in another place. You know, there's not just anxiety, but I guess she was facing a lot of backlash from certain parts of the population. So, you know, it took some courage. And of course, it was about justice because it would lead to the um, conviction of Shilbin. Uh, and, you know, just having the self-control to do it all, uh, which is, you know, self-control, temperance, moderation. So in a sense, that was stoic virtue in action. And the idea is that each of us has the ability to contribute to justice, given the situation we're, con- we're faced with, with any particular situation we're faced with, and our ability to make choices in those situations that are either virtuous or not virtuous. Um and, you know, it's not just in individual situations, but you can devote yourself to lifelong, you know, quests for whether it be criminals, justice reform, um, figuring out how to reduce racial inequality, um, you know, what have you. Uh, is still a concept, oikiosis, I think it is, but the point is we all have a role to play. Um, and so... Instead of getting so bent out of shape about how the system is, you know, screwing us over that it's, uh, you know, that, you know, the system can't reform itself and all that jazz. The issue is to do what you um, can to actually try to help reform the system. Focus on that, um, and I think that's what stoicism is about: is is you know focusing on 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 intent, moral intention, virtue, building a character. Because when you do. You know, justice is about treating people well, treating people with dignity and respect and so on, and, and all of, all else will follow. Great. Yeah, oikiosis, oikiosis sounds like uh, it has similar roots to economi- economics, actually, um, being that uh, oikonomia or whatever is the, is the Greek root for economics. Um, so, or, yeah, something like that. Anyway, uh, so I guess my final question, and this is just something that I've been really trying to reason through in my mind lately, and it, it, you might have already answered it, but do you believe that humans have a telos, like a purpose, um, a fundamental functionality that is ours, unique from other animals? Well, you know, I do tend to be, you know, I guess you call, you call me a stoic. I, I actually say that I, I like Stoic philosophy and I think I incorporated a lot of it into my life and I did so before I even knew it because, you know, I had sort of had these natural Stoic inclinations. Anyway, I mentioned this because in a sense, the Stoics come from, you know, they're the ancients and the ancients were very much about um, the idea that, they're, you know, with Aristotle and so on, there's this difference between man and animal based on rationality. Um, and uh, and also very much about sort of the telos. Um, and in fact, Stoicism is in some sense, you know, they have a very specific conception of nature. Uh, talking about nature, but it's important to actually sort of explain briefly about what we mean by nature. And it's, it's basically the idea that we have the potential to be these sort of perfectly virtuous people. So it's about teleological conception of nature. It's about what we're capable of being, becoming. Um, so I guess if you want to come back to my, the sort of stoic uh, inclinations that I have, then I would say yes. Um, 
We have obviously creatures of reason. We have this potential to be virtuous creatures. And by the way, it's not about becoming more and more virtuous. For Stoics, it's either you are or are not virtuous. Most of us are not virtuous. It's about it's about striving to be virtuous. Um, but uh, at any rate, um, in that sense, yes. But at the same time, um, I have to admit that uh, you know, from, from from the time I was in high school, Darwin was very very influential to me. Um, and I do think that ultimately the, the universe is in some is kind of immor- amoral. Like I wouldn't say there's anything special about human beings. Mm. And so when we say as Stoics that the universe is rational, uh, it's rational in the sense that it's intelligible to us. And I, you know, there's a, as far as I understand that there's a debate among the Stoic community about that. Um, and I don't think my friend Kai Whiting necessarily agree with me but the um the issue is that i'm inclined to not believe that uh which um maybe you could say conflicts with that stoic inclination to live in accordance with nature where nature is this teleological conception of being the best we can be um and i myself i i I think it's perfectly reconcilable because the idea is we are rational we have reason and that implies to me that we can figure out how to be virtuous. Um, but I don't think it necessarily follows. It doesn't have to follow that. And I don't know if this is actually what you were asking, but that the universe itself is teleological and that therefore we have this sort of higher purpose, if you will. Awesome. That was way deeper than I expected it to go. I like that. Thank you so much. So I guess to close it out, why don't you go ahead and plug where people can can follow you if you have social media or, or particular websites where you write, things like that? Uh, yeah, I guess, um, you know, there's my Twitter account. It's uh, John David Church and it's J-O-N. And then the website, I guess, is, is uh, JonathanDavidChurch.com, www. I guess that, that's that's all. Um, you know, I I, uh, I guess I somewhat sheepishly say I'm not the best self-promoter, but kind of have to get it out there, I suppose. And so that's where you would go. I just kind of like to think about this stuff and really that's it. You know, I'm uh, I'm not trying to go out there and um, rant and rave about it, I guess, but uh, I just like to think about these things because they're important things to think about. Um, And I guess the point is it's ultimately not about me. It's about the ideas, but you know, the reality is I, I have to get them out somewhere. And so you can find that on Twitter and my website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan. The book's uh, Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility is the Wrong Way to Think About Racial Inequality is available now. And the upcoming one, which uh, I don't have right, Virtue in an Age of Identity Politics, A Stoic Approach to Social Justice is upcoming. Do you have a public- publication date for that? Yeah, right now it's supposed to be May 2022. Uh, cool. May, um, although I will see. I mean, it, could vary, who knows, but that's the schedule publication date. Great. Well, I appreciate your work. Thank you for being reasonable and rational. uh, And we will talk again soon. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. 
If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. Thank you.